2007, October 8th. Today is Lecture 13, Greek Astronomy, the first lecture of Unit 3. Well, we're beginning a new, a new unit today, which is on the rise of modern astronomy. The last two units, the last three weeks of the class, three and two and a half weeks of the class, we've been going at this first question of astronomy. What is it? Describe it. We did that by going through and describing all of the naked eye phenomena that we can see in the sky, starting with the simplest motions of the stars rising in the east and setting in the west, and ending last Thursday with a discussion of the very complex motions followed by the planets. We're now going to move on to the second question. How does it work? What is the physics behind the phenomena that we, what, that we see? And in particular, what we're going to be concerned with is explaining why the planets and why the heavens appear to move the way they do, night to night, year to year, and of course, over the course of centuries. And we're going to follow an historical progression. The way we're going to explore this topic is the same way, in fact, that this was discovered by humanity. But we're going to do it in one week rather than 3,000 years. And today we're going to begin with a discussion of getting back to this question of how the planets move and how people began to explain them. And we're going to do that by looking at the explanations developed over the period of classical Greece, because that, in fact, is the way of explaining those motions that came down to us through the Middle Ages and Renaissance, and therefore was the starting point for the beginning explorations of such people as Copernicus, Kepler, Tycho, and Galileo, leading finally to this grand synthesis of Isaac Newton that actually derived what the physical laws were underlying planetary motions. So today's lecture, lecture 13, is on the harmony of the spheres about Greek astronomy. The key ideas today are as follows. I want to start by introducing the early geocentric systems, so-called Earth-centered systems. We're going to see the first of these from a philosopher by the name of Anaximander and go on to a, a series of models progressively more complicated by people like Pythagoras, Plato, Eudoxus, and Aristotle that led to the starting point of trying to go from simply seeing what the motions were but to predicting what the motion should be, predicting, for example, when Mars should go retrograde. This then led to the earliest of the heli... This led, sort of an interlude in here, of the earliest heliocentric system, the earliest sun-centered system. This was not invented by Copernicus. The first recognizable heliocentric system, we're going to see very briefly, was invented by someone named Aristarchus of Samos. It was an idea that should have but never did catch on. It was the reason, one of the reasons, it was, it was replaced by a very complex but surprisingly accurate geocentric system called the epicyclic geocentric system. It was first introduced by one of the greatest astronomers of antiquity, Hipparchus, and then later brought to its final form by Claudius Ptolemy, who we've already met during the second century AD. And it was this system that was to survive for more than 1,500 years, from late antiquity to the early Renaissance, that became the starting point and friction point for the discussions that we will pick up tomorrow when we meet Nicholas Copernicus. So today we're going to look at the antecedents. Where did these ideas come from? Because often it's very important to see where the ideas come from, even if those ideas, in this case, we know are outmoded, because they're very informative about how you begin to grasp difficult problems. Let's start with a quick summary of what we know about the fixed motions. We've got the, the various motions in the heavens. What do we see? Well, the first thing is we can look at the fixed stars. On human timescales, or even on the timescales of multiple generations, the stars do not appear to move among themselves, but simply appear to be fixed to an immense crystalline sphere just outside of our reach, the celestial sphere, and the stars appear to daily rise in the east and set in the west, 
following a very uniform speed around the central, the celestial poles. They really do look like they're moving on circles at the same uniform speed round and around day after day. The next motion that we obviously are sensitive to is the motion of the sun. This is a little bit more complex. It too undergoes daily motion of rising in the east and setting in the west. But in addition to going from east to west, there is a general west towards east slow motion against the background stars that carries the sun around the tilted path of the ecliptic through the course of a year. So it's the first example of a compound motion. East to west on uniform speed plus a, an extra component of eastward drift that gives you the motion about the ecliptic. Furthermore, if you really watch the course of the seasons carefully, you quickly discern that the sun is not moving at a uniform constant speed across the sky. And the way you can tell that without having to track the sun against the stars, which is difficult, is you simply look at the length of the seasons. The time it takes to go from summer solstice to autumnal equinox is different than the time you go from autumnal equinox to the winter solstice. The seasons are of unequal length, and they're of unequal length in the direction that the sun is moving faster in the winter and slower in the summer. So, if you will, from northern hemisphere, autumnal equinox to winter solstice, winter solstice to spring equinox, take less time than spring through summer back to fall. The seasons are, in fact, longer by about five or six days, depending on how you do the reckoning. That has to be explained. It's, you can't just simply ignore that. The sun is not moving at an exactly uniform rate. It moves a little faster against the stars in winter, a little slower in the summertime. The next motion is the moon. The moon, again, rises in the east and sets in the west. But in addition, it seems to move a bit to the east with respect to the stars, completing one complete circle cycle of phases over the course of a single lunar month of about 27 and a half days. It doesn't appear against the same stars in that same period, because if you look at it in its motions with respect to the background stars, it's more like 29 days. But it's still a generally eastward motion on top of this general rising in the east and setting in the west from day to day. Those motions are all basically simple compound motions, but they're all in the same general direction. The motion with respect to the background stars is always a slow eastward motion. And then we get to the planets, and the planets are much more complex. First of all, they, they also share this daily motion around the celestial poles. Mars and Jupiter all rise in the east and set in the west. But their detailed motion with respect to the stars is much more complicated. A lot of the time, they are moving eastwards. But sometimes that eastward motion will stop. They will back up and go westward or retrograde, stop again, and then continue along moving eastward through the stars. So they actually change direction and even halt their motion as seen with respect to the background stars. And in fact, we have additional clues as to what's going on from the fact that superior planets go, undergo this westward or retrograde motion when they're in the configuration of opposition. When the planet is high in the sky on your meridian, exactly at midnight, that's when they're going through maximum retrograde motion. And then the, the onset and end of retrograde motion brackets that time by many months or a small amount of period, depending on which planet you're in. The inferior planets, Mercury and Venus, go undergo retrograde motion when they're at inferior conjunction, when they are, if you will, between the sun and the earth, as viewed from, they're in the evening and morning sky. They're moving backwards or westwards. And finally, the last clue is that the superior planets are brightest at opposition. 
They're much fainter as they're going away towards conjunction when they're on the other side of the sun from the earth, but they're at maximum brightness when they're at opposition, which again is telling us something about their geometric location within the solar system. All of these phenomena have to be described if you want to come up with a self-consistent description of the motions of the heavens. You cannot ignore any of these motions. You have to predict them in detail, and your system has to be self-consistent in the sense that the same basic underlying rules apply to all of them and are applied uniformly. You can't have any magic. You can't have any special pleading or any special cases in here. Everything's got to hang together as a system. And that's the real challenge that's at this. There's a lot of detail in here that has to be described, but especially the motions of the planets are the most challenging. It, again, to give you an idea of what you're up against, here is a picture taken as a composite photograph taken from July 2005 to February 2006, just watching the course of Mars with respect to the background stars. North is up, east is to the left. Mars, start, Mars starts down here on July 2005, moving generally eastward, but you see the spacing gets closer and closer as it slows down, finally stops, move backwards at the time of opposition. Notice that Mars appears brighter here than it does here. That brightness in this picture is a bigger image. Then it slows down again, comes to a stop, and resumes its eastward motion, getting progressively fainter as it does so. So Mars is at maximum brightness right here at the middle of opposition, which is the middle of retrograde motion. And you'll notice it's sort of a S-shape curve. But other times, Mars won't make an S-shape. Mars will make a loop-de-loop. And other things. The paths are very complex, and they're slightly different each time. There's a lot of detail that has to be described correctly. So how do you begin to get at this detail? Well, the first and most basic perspective that we have standing here on the surface of the Earth is that we are standing still. We are at rest. We are not moving with respect to the heavens. But rather, you can take the perspective that the heavens are moving around us. That is, that the Earth is the center of the universe, and everything is simply turning around that center, which is represented by us. So-called Earth-centered systems are referred to as geocentric systems. Now, the first surviving geocentric system in detail that we know of comes to us from the, from, um, the 6th century BC, and it comes to us from one of the great early philosophers of classic, classical Greece, Anaximander of Miletus. He was the first real philosopher who espoused a systematic geocentric description. Now, anyone could just simply say, yeah, okay, we're down here and the, and, the, and the heavens are turning above us. But it's another thing to try to describe it, at least beginning to describe it mathematically. The way his system worked is as follows. He saw the Earth as a flat disk. He did not see it as a sphere, but it was flat, kind of a disk-like cylinder, fixed and unmoving at the center. The sun, moon, and stars were themselves affixed to gigantic crystalline spheres, the centers of those spheres was on the flat disk of the Earth, and they turned by some means that he did not understand how. They simply turned round and around through the sky. Each of the spheres turned in their own independent ways, and those combinations of motion are what gave you the apparent motions of the sun, moon, stars, and planets. The stars were simplest. You simply affix them to the largest crystalline sphere, and you let them simply turn at a constant rate over 24 hours. You then tied the other spheres into that sphere so that they were carried around once a day, but then they underwent their own eastward motions on their own. We don't know a lot of details of Anaximander's system. because We don't know, for example, how he explained retrograde motion of the planets 
or their non-uniform speeds. But there was one real big difference here with Anaximander's system that makes it stand out, even if it's kind of ridiculously oversimplified today. It was that he treated the sun, moon, and stars and the planets as physical objects. And that those physical objects had motions which could be describable at least in a geometric language that he was trying to use. His geometry was not very well developed. We do not know what physical mechanism he thought was behind it. But that he viewed them as physical objects was a big change because before that, people didn't really think of them as physical objects. They thought of the sun as just simply like a burning disk painted upon the heavens that was carried around. If you wanted to see it carried around by Phoebus' chariot, okay, so be it. But he viewed them as physical objects like the physical objects on the earth. In fact, Anaximander thought that meteorites, these occasional rocks which seemed to fall from the sky, were in fact something coming from the sun, and therefore there were pieces of the sun that fell to the earth. That's why they were so hot when they first landed, and you picked them up and they were really hot to the touch. People thought this was crazy. He got kicked out of town for heresy on this. And as the story goes, not too long after that, a gigantic rock hit the ground from the earth. It was burning hot, and they went, oh, gee, that Anaximander guy was right. We better get him back. Gods are pissed off at us. Um, But he really viewed it as physical objects. The sun was made of something like the stuff on earth. It was a really radical idea. The next person who really we know of, having picked up this question of what is the nature of the heavens, was Pythagoras, who lived again. He was, he was, uh, came from essentially the century later after Anaximander. He lived in the 5th century BC. He was a philosopher and mathematician. He actually lived um, out in the Mediterranean in the island of Sicily, and he founded the Pythagorean school. We know Pythagoras primarily because of his philosophical school, his writings on mathematics and geometry, especially his writings on numbers and harmonies. Remember, we saw him before, he proposed that the earth was not flat, but a sphere. And he used that argument based on a certain appeal to geometric aesthetics. That a sphere was the most perfect geometrical form, and therefore the earth should reflect that, that geometric perfection. Furthermore, he also thought that the spherical earth was also a reflection of the presence of spheres in the sky itself. So he also saw the universe as being organized into a series of concentric crystalline spheres. He made them crystalline because you couldn't see them. So they had to be made of such transparent, perfect cosmic material that you couldn't see them materially, but he thought of them as physical material spheres. You put these planets and these stars on these concentric crystalline spheres, you put at the very center the solid sphere of the Earth, and then you set them in motion. But he went one step further. He said that the sizes of these spheres weren't just any old size, but they actually followed whole number ratios of even numbers, like 2 to 1 and 3 to 2 and so forth. Those of you who study music will recognize those as the common harmonic ratios among different chords and different different musical notes. And this wasn't an accident in Pythagoras' way of looking at it. He really thought that the vibrations from these spheres rubbing one on the other created a constant harmonious music of the spheres. That musical harmony, mathematical harmony, geometric harmonies were all of a theme for the Pythagoreans. They they got a certain aesthetic thrill out of finding certain number relationships or certain geometric relationships. They were really obsessed with forms and symmetry. And they thought that getting that aesthetic thrill was the same as the aesthetic thrill you kind of get when you listen to a musical harmony. You notice how some music just sounds so good. And if someone hits a wrong note, you go, oh, oh, yeah, that sounds like modern music. Okay, if someone hits a wrong note, you can feel it. But when it's harmonious, you kind of like it. 
And what Pythagoras and the school thought was that harmony was sort of giving us a hint of the eternal, a hint of the underlying rules that ran the cosmos, that ran everything. And that if we could describe these, if they were in mathematical or geometric language, we were getting a glimpse at how the universe was assembled by the gods. So this idea of harmony, so there should be a harmonious ratios, that this beauty is inherent in the description of the system, again, strikes us as kind of an odd idea, but it turns out to be an extremely important motivator for the next 2,000 years of inquiry. It's a consistent idea that stays even to this day where you find things like harmoniousness or elegance in mathematical formulas is actually as much a part of it as the detailed mathematics. So Pythagoras did more than just simply espouse crystalline spheres and everything else. He also started this idea that there should be an underlying mathematically describable harmony to the heavens. And all we had to do was discern what those rules were, and we had a basis for calculation to make predictions about what that world was going to behave like in the future. This is an important breakpoint. It's an important way of conceiving it. It's not simply utilitarian. There's something more behind it. It's informed by something deeper and more aesthetic. Well, that brings us forward a little bit in the 5th century sort of to a person, in this case, Eudoxus, who was born in the beginning of the 5th century, did most of his work in the 4th century BC. Eudoxus was a pupil of Plato. Now, we've already met Plato before. He again wanted a spherical earth because of this aesthetic reason of spherical perfection. Plato, I'm sorry, Eudoxus took this idea, stemming from Pythagoras and others, of the idea that the planets were on crystalline spheres, but then he made two particular innovations. One is he added more spheres, and second, he incorporated a platonic ideal known as uniform circular motion. That the way in which these spheres were moving was at a constant speed, what's called uniform circular motion, a circle being the most perfect geometric path that an object could follow, a circle being the largest geometric circle, circle you could draw upon the surface of a sphere, and the idea that it was uniform at a constant speed moving round and around. It's a very important idea. It was one that was have about 2,000 years of sticking power. Now, the way the Eudoxus worked is he tried to actually elaborate upon these systems to get accurate predictions. So he came up with a system of 27 spheres. The first and outermost largest sphere was the sphere of the fixed stars. He required a system of three spheres for each of the sun and the moon. So there's six spheres total when you add up the sun and the moon. We're up to seven now. And four for each of the five planets. Five times four is 20, plus the six for the sun and moon, plus one for the celestial sphere brings us to the grand total of 27 spheres. These all nest within each other and they turn at exactly the right rate, either forwards or backwards, so that their combined motion together gives us all the motions we see in the heavens, including retrograde motion. It was the system of Eudoxus that is the first one we know of that explicitly addresses the issue of retrograde motion. Anaximander and Pythagoras talked about harmonies and crystalline spheres, but they never really gave any detailed predictions. Eudoxus is the first such system that comes forward to us that actually was a calculable mathematical system that actually predicted where the planet should be on a certain day and which way should they be moving when they were on that day. And he chose the speeds and orientations of all these spheres to match the appearance of what was actually seen in the sky. Here's just a picture to kind of illustrate that. In the Eudoxin system, the outer sphere was the celestial sphere. It was rotating around the celestial equator. 
the celestial poles. The earth was fixed and unmoving and spherical at the center. And it turned around once a day upon its axis. He didn't say what the motive power was for the turning. He simply asserted that it so turned. Now, embedded within this is a sphere whose axes are tilted by 23 and a half degrees. I'm only going to show one of them for clarity. It's tilted by 23 and a half degrees and its axis is fixed upon the outer crystalline sphere. So this sphere is carried around once every day and then this blue sphere of the sun turns in a west to east motion once a year. So as it turns, goes around the sun once a day, goes around the earth, excuse me, once a day, and then it slowly turns from west to east, giving you the annual motion of the sun around the ecliptic. He added two other spheres, which I'm going to omit for clarity, which took into account the fact that the sun moved faster in the summer and slow, uh, faster in the winter, faster in the winter and slower in the summer, giving the unequal lengths of the seasons. Now, a planet, I'm going to leave the moon out because it's, it's not too enlightening here. Planets were on different spheres. I've shown just two of the four spheres that he used, and they would rotate or counter-rotate in such a way, everything was tuned up just right, so the planets moved retrograde at the right time. So Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, for example, the superior planets, moved retrograde when they were at opposition compared to the Sun and the Earth. Now, very simple system in many ways, directly calculable. The calculations were relatively straightforward because everything rotated at exactly the same rate. The appearance of slowing up and moving down was simply how the two uniform rates worked together, sometimes with each other, sometimes counter to each other, so that their combined motion would be drift east, stop, back up, move west, stop, and then move back east again. Everything, all the individual components, like the individual components of a clock, were moving at the right rates. He just tweaked up those rates and their sizes so everything came out right, so that the system preserved appearances. It's a very important idea. Preserving appearances is an essence of these models, as is this idea, a very seductive idea, of uniform circular motion. It's a platonic ideal because Plato and all the others were concerned with perfection and uniform circular motion was the most perfect form of cyclic motion. So this idea of perfection was very, very seductive. And in fact, it turns out to be not only seductive, but as we'll see, highly misleading. Well, the Eudoxin system worked okay, but it too was, in, was insufficient to really correctly make accurate predictions over relatively long periods of time. And it actually t fell to a contemporary of Eudoxus, also a pupil of Plato, who we've also met before, Aristotle. Aristotle was, lived during the 4th century BC. He was the tutor of Alexander the Great. He wrote a huge amount of, he did a huge amount of work in his life. He wrote many, many books on all kinds of topics. He's the most influential philosopher of ancient times and the most influential philosopher of the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance, as we'll see later, because his works survived nearly all intact. And he wrote authoritatively about everything. The word, I don't know, was not in Aristotle's vocabulary. In particular, the work we're interested in is in On the Heavens. This is the same work that he used to prove the sphericity of the Earth with observations. He took the, the Eudoxin system and in order to make it work better, had to expand the number of spheres, adding more spheres, tuning up their rates, until his final system, described in On the Heavens, had 55 crystalline spheres nested within spheres. 
I'm not even going to try to draw it. It was very complicated, but all those spheres, their motions were motivated physically. The earth was fixed and unmoving at the center because he reasoned it was too big to move. Again, it's kind of a common sense point of view. It's easy to push a little rock or toss a pebble, but as you get to progressively bigger boulders, they resist being moved more and more until you finally get to a mountain and no man can push upon a mountain and make it move. So now when you have the ultimate body, the earth itself, it seemed to him that it was so big it was impossible for it to be set in motion, that it must be fixed and literally unmoving. It can't rotate, it can't rock back and forth, it can't do squat. It just sits there, right smack in the middle. All the spheres are in uniform circular motion. He preserved this platonic ideal of motion. And by applying those rules self-consistently, he was able to come up with a system which accurately described the motion of the planets to within the limitations of the data that he had available. All the individual motions of these 55 spheres were perfect, but it was the way they combined to produce the slowdown and speed up. So it was relatively unnatural for objects to change their speed on any individual way, but it was only by compounding perfect motions that you got the appearance of imperfect motions. Aristotle was really motivated by saying there's a physical mathematical explanation for everything, and that's embodied within his system here. Now, the Aristotelian system is, I'm going to mention it some more because it's very, very influential. It consisted of a number of basic assumptions that were essential to its workings. The idea was that the system had to be self-consistent. Once you lay down the rules, you're required to obey those rules, no exceptions. If you start making exceptions, you've broken the rules, and your system is no longer harmonious. So this is a very important idea. You can't just simply contrive a system, just make stuff up, you actually have to make a, you have to con, you build your system up, but it must be constrained by certain rules that are motivated by physical observations of the world. This is an important idea. So it's one we have to keep in mind because it actually carries through the modern age. The first major idea is that the Earth is a sphere, which you can, you can demonstrate observationally, sh shadow of the Earth upon the eclipsing the eclipsed moon, um, and so forth. It is fixed and unmoving. It doesn't move. It's too big to move. It's unmovable. If you try to have a system that set the Earth into motion, it violates this rule and therefore is inconsistent. The idea of the Earth moving was unnatural, if you will, to Aristotle. In fact, the natural state of the Earth is the state of rest. And again, this is a common sense idea. If I pick something up, a material object with a certain mass, and I set it into motion, it moves, but when all that fuss and motion is done, it comes to rest, and it comes to rest upon the earth. Everything that you see moving eventually comes to rest. It's a common, everyday observation, and Aristotle said that was a reflection of some deep, underlying truth. Everything we know of, pottery, glass, Marvin dolls, are made of the products of the earth, earth, air, wind, and fire, the four elements. And so therefore, it's returning to the earth. It's returning to its natural state. Since the earth is at rest, so too all material objects come to rest upon the earth. Motion of them, they're un wild motions here are fundamentally unnatural and they eventually tend to rest, an important idea. The natural state of the heavens is different. 
On the earth is decay and death, but in the heavens is unceasing perfection, year after year, century after century. And therefore, the rules that apply to the heavens are different. Here, the ideal state is not rest, but constant, unceasing, perpetual motion. And that motion isn't just any motion, it consists of uniform circular motion, the platonic ideal of perfect motion. And that the structure of the heavens reflects the underlying perfection of the geometry of a sphere. So Aristotle divided the world in two. There was the earth and the rules that applied on earth, and there were the heavens above and the rules that applied only in the cosmos. And the different rules for the earth than for the cosmos. That separation was going to be unfortunate because, in fact, we now believe in the, today that what's so important about our modern view of the world is the same rules on earth apply in the heavens and vice versa. They are simply different manifestation of the same set of rules. Within this context, setting the earth in motion, making the earth yet another planet, circling the sun and setting it in rotation around its axis was unnatural. The earth was too big, it was unimaginable that it could do so, therefore it cannot happen. And that is the line of reasoning that Aristotle applied to the physics of his system. Aristotle really is pro producing a physical system subject to essentially these rules. And he makes his system self-consistent with that. After Aristotle, what we will see is an expansion upon these ideas but always keeping in mind this set of rules which makes logical sense. It's how we experience the world in some way. It's at least consistent with our common sense view of the world. We do appear to be at the center of the universe. The stars and the sun appear to rise and set and move in the west. I am not conscious of the motion of the earth. And if I set any piece of the earth in motion, it eventually comes back to rest upon the earth. Only the heavens are in perpetual motion. What all these models, both Aristotle and those who came after them, are trying to accomplish is they're trying to preserve appearances. They start from basic philosophical ideals like the ones I've just described. They build systems that conform to these ideals. They follow the rules that you've laid down. They then adjust the parameters of these systems to yield accurate predictions of planetary motions. Now, at this point, there's no need to ascribe underlying physical causes. Aristotle could not tell you why the crystalline spheres were in motion, could not tell you what those crystalline spheres were made of. He simply asserted that they were in motion and who knew who set them in motion or how or what keeps them in motion. They're different. They're in the heavens. We cannot know that we are here on the earth and we are bound to the earth, for example, is a way of getting around the question by kind of ignoring it. This way of thinking and this approach of just preserving the appearance, coming up with what we would call today a phenomenological model, was immensely influential and had a profound impact on all subsequent thinking about planetary systems. Built into these systems, it can't tell you why Mars should have the motions it does. You were simply content to reproduce them as they were not describe why they should be that way from first principles. Your goal was to preserve appearances and make accurate predictions and to do so with self-consistent systems based on rules that you could state and quantify. Now, there were alternative opinions. There was an alternative way of looking at the solar system called a heliocentric or sun-centered system. This puts the sun, not the earth, at the center of the solar system. The earth 
then is set into motion both rotating around its axis and revolving, meaning orbiting, around the sun in the center. The stars are still on an immense crystalline sphere, but that sphere is now centered upon the sun, and it's fixed at such a large distance that I cannot tell that, the, that I'm on one side of the sphere versus another. The stars all look the same brightness, whether they're at opposition or conjunction. That's not so true of the planets. All the complex, non-uniform, and retrograde motions now are not a consequence of wheels turning upon wheels in the celestial sphere, but in fact are just simply that we're trying to view a moving solar system from the perspective of a moving, rotating Earth. And so what I see is not only their motion, but my motion compounded together. So the stars appear to rise and set in the east, not because this immense crystalline sphere is in motion, because the Earth is turning about its axis. I see the sun slip around the ecliptic, not because the sun is turning upon another set of crystalline spheres, but because the sun is fixed at the center and I'm simply swinging around it on an orbit. The only heliocentric system we know of from antiquity was proposed in the fourth century BC by Aristarchus of Samos. His reasoning was also physical. Aristarchus, the only surviving work of Aristarchus to come down to us, is a treatise on the sizes and distances of the sun and moon. He tried to measure their distances using geometric techniques, and he was able to show that the sun was 20 times further than the moon through his geometric technique. If the sun is 20 times further away from the earth than the moon, then by projection that makes the sun five times bigger than the earth. Well, okay, actually, it's about 100 times bigger than the Earth in radius. His techniques were pretty good, but his, his measurement precision was off. He couldn't quite manage the kind of precision needed to do this right. But he was on the right track. This observation to, to Aristarchus really shocked him because he said, well, if Aristotle claims that the Earth can't be in motion because it's too big, and the Sun is five times bigger, therefore five cubed, or 125 times the volume, therefore probably 125 times the mass, if it's made of the same stuff, that it's even more absurd for the sun to be in motion. So we think this is his reasoning, that why he was drawn to a heliocentric system is the sun was the biggest thing in the solar system, so why should it not be the anchor and center of the solar system and not the Earth? He was the first person to try to geometrically measure the distance of the sun, and he found it so big that it was a greater absurdity for it to be in motion rather than the Earth. Now, very quickly, the way he did this observation is really quite clever. Take the moon, earth, and sun at, at, at first quarter, but now take into account the fact that the sun is a finite distance from the earth. First quarter occurs when the earth, moon, and sun are at a right angle here. Wait for last quarter to come around, you're here. But because of the finite distance of the earth to the sun, it takes you less time to go from last quarter to first quarter then it takes you to go from first quarter to last quarter because the geometry of this makes the actual line here tilted on this Earth-Moon-Sun line. So you want to look at the Earth-Moon-Sun line, not the Sun-Earth-Moon line, which is not a 90-degree angle. If I made the Sun go further away, of course, I move these points closer and closer to the exact halfway point between the different phases. Now, this is really, really hard to measure. How do you tell when the Moon is exactly half-illuminated without a telescope. It's a very difficult measurement to make, which is why he got the, sun, the, sun, the, the distance of the sun wrong, why he had the sun closer than it really is. 
But it was a start. It was a good idea. It was geometrically sound. He just didn't have the technology to pull it off. But it was enough to make the sun really big. It was a marvelous observation. It was universally derided and then ignored. So what did people do? Well, the next major innovation comes in the second century BC with the introduction of the mechanism of the epicycle. It was done by a man named Hipparchus of Nicaea, who was the greatest astronomer of antiquity. He discovered the precession of the equinoxes. He developed a system of measuring the brightnesses of stars called the stellar magnitude system, that is a modification of which is what we use to this day. And he was the person who introduced that Babylonian angular notation of 360 degrees in a circle to the Greek world. Before that, the Greeks used a division of 60, the circle into 60 positions. Whereas the Babylonian system of 60, 360 degrees was introduced by Hipparchus, who had access to Babylonian records. That's why he brought them in. And using that Babylonian data, he was able to look at many centuries of data. With that ex excellent data measuring the planets, he was able to come up with a very highly refined mathematical geocentric system to make very accurate predictions. But instead of using crystalline spheres within spheres, he introduced an idea of epicycles, which was originally thought of by a man named Apollonius of Perga. In this case, instead of having spheres within spheres, he would locate one circle upon another. An epicycle literally means in Greek, on the circle. And further, to get these slightly non-uniform speeds across the sky, he removed the Earth from the exact center of the solar system and placed it slightly off-center at an eccentric position. Now we take the simplest system of Aristotle and we're going to elaborate it. Here's what these epicycles look like. There's a master circle called the deferent. The Earth is located slightly off-center at, at an eccentric position, not on the exact center. And then out here on this guiding point, which rolls around the surface of the deferent, is the circle upon the circle, the epicycle. Both the deferent and the epicycle turn, as I've drawn it here, in a counterclockwise position, and the planet is fixed upon that epicycle. By the combination of the center of the epicycle moving about the deferent and then the epicycle turning, you produced retrograde motion. You just made a little loop-de-loop -loop by basically having a little circular gear machinery. And so now we get two of the observations for free. We get going retrograde at opposition, if we have the sun like this is the planet Mars, and the planet is closest to the Earth when it goes in the bottom of this loop. As it's closer, it's brighter. So it describes very well the observations of what planets look like when they undergo opposition. The success was the combined motion gives you the retrograde motion of the planets. Everything moves in the same direction, still using uniform circular motion. The superior planets are brighter and closer at opposition with retrograde. Check. We've found, made that observation explained. And by putting the Earth at an eccentric position, we introduce a slight non-uniformity in apparent speed because of the projections. Even though the motions themselves are in uniform circular motion, we see that motion projected upon the celestial sphere. We can fine-tune it by adding epicycles. The most elaborate version of this system was developed by Claudius Ptolemy in the, by the second century AD. What Ptolemy did was to take the epicycles of Hipparchus and elaborate them in much more detail. Now I'm going to go through this quickly because we've already met him. But he introduced the idea of the equant. He placed the motion center of the epicycle off-center 
and replace uniform circular motion by uniform angular motion. So in the end, he finally put together his system, the ultimate geocentric system. This is the model of Claudius Ptolemy at the end of second century. It used more than 40 odd separate epicycles, deference, equants, and eccentric positions. It all worked together and produced remarkably accurate predictions of the motions of the planets. It was so accurate, it was to prevail as the primary model of the motions of the heavens for nearly 1,400 years. How that prevailed and how it was transmitted forward is a story we will pick up tomorrow.